0: Go Open your Bibles, if you have one, to 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7, uh, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through 17, so 17 verses here. This is God's covenant word that he gives, this amazing promise about restoring really all of creation through someone that he's going to put on the throne, someone from David's line, a son of David through whom he's going to restore everything that's broken in the world outside but also in here on the inside in our hearts. Amazing promise that God gives to David, God's covenant to him here in 2nd Samuel 7. Let's read. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, "See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent." And Nathan said to the king, "Go, Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up Whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So here's this amazing word of promise that God gives to David on the backside of David saying, Hey, I'd like to build God a house. What do you think, Nathan? Um, let me share an anecdote with you before we dive into the text. uh, About a year ago, I met with a former pastor of a a quite prominent church here in the area, well, in Houston proper, and um, he told us about a man that he met with that was very rich, very successful in business, a magnate here here in the area, and was at the end of his life and was actually in the hospital, called him from the hospital and said, Pastor, basically, what do I need to do to secure a place on the bus for sure? Thought he was... A Christian wanted to be sure because, man, he was at the point where he didn't know if he was going to make it another day. I mean, balls on the tee, right, Pastor? Perfect opportunity. Um, well, the pastor literally gave his friend this advice. We're, we're putting together a school, a grad school, a um, seminary for training pastors. You need to be generous. You need to write a big check for scholarships, for supplies. Um, you need to give. Uh, I, I mean, literally, I couldn't, I didn't know if the guy was joking or, or if he was serious. But turns out, I mean, that was, that was the answer that he gave his friend. Um, do something for God. Do something big for God. That's the way to secure your place with him. I think one of the things that we learned from this text this morning is that God doesn't bless us or show us favor because of what we do for him or because of who we are but because of who he is and because of what he, in David's case, will do for David, and in our case, has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ. Um, so let's jump into the text. First couple verses, we, look, we see David's big idea. I've mentioned it already. We've read it. Um, he has this great idea. God's given him rest as the, as the text opens from all of his enemies all around. And that's sort of repeated in verse 9 and verse 12. It's a leading motif in the, in the passage, it's a theme. God's given him rest from all his enemies. And he, all the promises that he's given through Abraham to Israel are starting to come to fruition. I mean, we can actually see God's put a king over his people who images God, who, who, who reigns well, who loves God's heart, who's a shepherd, who blesses the people. He's given his people Israel a land to dwell in. He's made them a great people, and he will continue to do that. Um, And God said, and and David says, he comes to his prophet Nathan, his advisor, one of his advisors, and he says, you know, look, we're settled. After centuries of wandering as a people, God's given us this land and and I've built a house and we've conquered this city, Jerusalem, God's city. It's time to build God a house. What do you think? And Tim Keller, um, a pastor up in New York, he characterizes Nathan's answer in verse three as something that like any pastor would basically say. Which is, um, you know, David comes to him and basically says, like, blank check, uh, I've got all this money, all these resources, um, capital campaign, building, and so on and so forth. Anything you want, what do you think? Is it a good idea? And, I mean, any, any pastor would basically just say, like Nathan said, go and do all that is in your heart. Uh, God bless you, sir. Um, that's essentially what Nathan says. It's a no-brainer. But God says something different. says that the word of the Lord comes. Note that personal characteristic of the word of the Lord. The, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan at night and says, no, David's not going to build me a house. I'm going to build him a house. It's this tremendous promise where there's a sort of play on this idea that he wants to build me a literal house. He's already got a house for himself, but I'm going to build him a house that is going to be rulership from his loins, from his own line, that will bless creation. Not just the strip of Israel, not just the promised land, but it will bless all of creation and restore all that's been lost through the fall. That's that's the magnitude of this promise that starts to be fulfilled in Solomon, but it's way, way bigger than Solomon, as we'll see. Um, I think that... One of the things God's word does is it kind of resets the bone. I think David's in a good place, but he's so successful, and he's at the top of his game at this point, and he's perilously close to being on the brink of perhaps the mentality of, I can do something good for God. I can bless God. Let me give a little back. Um, And I feel like God's word kind of resets that broken bone in David's thinking. You know, success can be our worst enemy, Um, Because the more success I have, whether it's not just money materially, but, you know, the more degrees I get, the more social connections I make, um, the more I'm esteemed in men's eyes, the more I have, the more proud I can tend to become just because of my disposition, because of who I am, because I'm broken. And the more I can get to the mentality that, you know, you know, God needs my help. God could use my help. Um, I, I am God and you are not, even if the person we're speaking to is God himself. That's what pride does to us. And I don't think David's here. David's idea is, is generous and big hearted even. But I think that he could be headed in that direction. I think God cuts him off at the pass with, with this amazing promise. Um, the fact is that the dragnet of pride it catches us all. So I don't want any of us in here to be feel like we can escape this dragnet if we don't think of ourselves as, as successful, if we're not wealthy, if we don't think of ourselves as, 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 as having a lot of resources up here in the cranium, or having a lot of social connections. Um, it, really, I think this dragnet, it catches us all, not just those of us who are, quote, successful. Because it has to do with our broken human condition. Um, the Bible is very clear. We're not just, because of the sin of our parents, and we're represented in them as we are born into Adam, into his sin, into his rebellion. We don't just sin. We don't just do things that offend God. Is that what the Bible says. We are sinners. It's our disposition to run from God, even if we're worshiping in church, in our hearts saying, actually, that's, that's my gig. That's mine. Don't touch. I wake up every morning sort of prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, having like a boat just, that's not anchored, just straight off course. I have to remind myself of the gospel every single day. Why is that? Because I'm broken inside. Even as a new creation in Christ, there's something terribly wrong with me. And if we're outside of Christ, we're just totally corrupted. We're totally depraved in every part of who we are. Um, C.S. Lewis puts forward this truth with crystal and inescapable, I hope, clarity in the problem of pain. He says this, He says this sin has been described by St. Augustine as the result of pride, of the movement whereby a creature, that is an essentially dependent being, that's us, whose principle of existence lies not in itself, but in another, that's God, tries to set up on its own to exist for itself. Don't you find yourself thinking that it's kind of this is my gig, this life, it's up to me? Don't you find yourself always going back to that? From the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and of itself as self, the terrible alternative of choosing God or self for the center is open to it. The sin is committed daily by young children and ignorant peasants and by sophisticated persons, by solitaries no less than by those who live in society. It's the fall in every individual life and in each day of each individual life, the basic sin behind all particular sins. At this very moment, you and I are either committing it, about to commit it, or repenting of it. Inescapable. We try when we wake to lay the new day at God's feet. Okay, best case scenario. I'm gonna read that again. We try when we wake to lay the new day at God's feet. Before we've finished shaving, it becomes our day. And God sharing it is felt as a tribute, which we must pay out of our own pocket, a deduction from the time which we ought we feel to be our own. Thus all day long, in all the days of our life, we're sliding, slipping, falling away, as if God were to our present consciousness, a smooth inclined plane on which there is no resting. And indeed we are now of such a nature that we must slip off and the sin, because it is unavoidable, may be venial, but God cannot have made us so. He cannot have made us so he didn't make us so. There's something deeply wrong, not just with what I do, but I do these things because there's something deeply wrong in the deepest parts of who I am, my constitution. I need a new constitution. I need a new heart. What does Jesus say to Nicodemus? Truly, truly, to see the kingdom of God, to be in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You've got to have a new constitution. That's not something I can drum up, guys. It's not something you can drum up. I can't do enough good things. I can't build God a house. He has to build it for me. I can't give God anything that he really needs. He's got to do it all. And he has done it all. And this is what God's promise points to and tells us about. Um, So God's sharp word, but his tremendous promise at the same time, just resets the bone in David's thinking and I pray in ours. So let's look at God's overwhelming promise. Um, Basically, like I said, it's not just you're going to have a son who's going to rule. And then he'll have a son, and he'll have a son. That would be amazing. Your rule will never end. It will be eternal from your line, from your sons, sons, sons. But it's also, there's creational language mixed into this that points back to Eden, points back to the before the fall, to the, the way that God things, the way that God made things to be. And so what God is saying is this king that's going to come from your own. Loins. It's gonna be a son, a descendant of yours, is going to reign over all creation like Adam was supposed to do, and he's gonna restore things. He's gonna bring order. Not just, again, as I said at the beginning, not just the things that we see that are broken on the outside, but here. He, he's, gonna, he's gonna fix that bit of me that sometimes the the ennui is so much the angst, just the existential angst, is so much I don't even know why. Again, it's because I'm broken. The, Everything in my life maybe even seems to be going fine, but then I'll I'll go hide away and just cry or cry in my car if I'm driving somewhere or find a closet and just, and it's just even those sorts of things that go deep in us, the things that we don't even want to articulate, maybe even to our spouse if we're married. Those unmentionables, he's going to take care of. He's going to bring peace and rest in those places. That is a huge promise and David sees it and in David's prayer that we don't get to starting in verse 18 going through verse 29 David just says he gets it he says who am I God that you would do this sort of thing to me and through me I certainly don't deserve it so this promise is going to start to be fulfilled in David and then through his son which we find out is Solomon because part of the promise is he's going to build me a house you're not going to build me a house he will and through him I will build you a house. So Solomon does build a temple for God in Jerusalem. So we know that this is in part speaking to Solomon. Um, but it also is, as I've been sort of hinting at, it's so much bigger than Solomon. Because Solomon in his disobedience, if you read Kings, Chronicles, in his massive disobedience, um, in his basically leaving God, he sows the seeds of Israel's exile. And so restoration is not going to come from Solomon, but it's going to come through him. And even though he leaves God, God says, I will never leave him. That's my promise. I'm going to keep this promise and make good on it myself. Are you going to build me a house? No, I'm going to build you one. Um, sorry, to, I heard so many whoops in the congregation earlier. I hate to even say this to bring up the name of Johnny Manziel. I did it, <laughs> but I'm going to. Um, not talking so much about him, uh, uh, you know, played football at a A&M, and amazing, won the Heisman Is what, a true freshman? Um, Cleveland Browns drafted him in 2014. And I was just reading an article about him and the waste that he's making of his life. It's just so tragic. Um, and they just said, you know, unfortunately, and whether or not you agree with this is not the point, but the quote is, you know, the Cleveland Browns sort of left aside the old psychologist, Maxim, the, uh, the only indicator of possible future behavior is past behavior. And, uh, you know, you look at the story of David, and if you flip a few chapters ahead, he's, God's giving him this amazing promise now, and God, David is a man after God's own heart. But in a few chapters, a few pages from here, um, in no time at all, what does David do? He steals one of his best friends, his special bodyguard, as he's fighting for David, expanding David's territory, he steals his wife, who's at home alone, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then covers it up by killing, having his best friend killed. You almost want to flip the whole psychologist paradigm that I read about in that article about Manzel and say, God, if you just looked at what's about to happen, which you know is about to happen, because you are the God of all things and you're sovereign and you're omniscient, maybe you wouldn't have made this promise to David. But that reinforces the point. Of course, that's not true. God knows that's about to happen and he still makes this promise to David. It's not about David. It's not about David's performance. It's not about his sinlessness. It's about who God is and the way he works and what he will do through this son of David. Uh, My friend, uh, a good friend, was just, he was recently found out in an egregious sin. He'd been in the sin for almost half a decade. Uh, he'd kept it under wraps, but now everything is out in the open for anyone who knows him, and even some of those who don't. Uh, totally exposed, a light turned on in a dark place, it invades every corner. N- nothing, nothing left to hide. And some of us, we, we hide things in an egregious sort of way, and we are right now in a group this big. And all of us are hiding various things that we don't want people to see that we're ashamed of. But the fact is, my friend's stance is our stance, every single one of us before God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read from C.S. Lewis again, if you'll pardon me. Do not let us deceive ourselves. No possible complexity which we can give to our picture of the universe can hide us from God. There's no copse, no forest, no jungle thick enough to provide cover We read in Revelation of him that sat on the throne, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. It may happen to us, any of us, at any moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in a time too small to be measured, and in any place, all that seems to divide us from God can flee away, vanish, leaving us naked before him, like the first man, like the only man, as if nothing but he and I existed. No cover. He sees all. And that's a problem for every one of us. Someone wiser than Lewis said it this way, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. You know, God knew what David would do, and it grieved him to his very heart. But he made this huge promise. He gave this huge gift to David anyway. Why? Because that's the kind of God he is. He's compassionate, loving, merciful, and forgiving. And through this promise, he was going to take care of the problem inside of David that manifested itself in his behavior. And he, through that promised son, will take care of, is taking care of the problem in our life, us. You know, G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, a genera- half a generation before C.S. Lewis, uh, a newspaper um, was soliciting from famous persons of whom he was one at the time in England, what's wrong with the world? Give us your best answers. And he wrote back the shortest reply. He said, dear sirs, in response to your uh, question, what is wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. There's no more apt answer than that, no more pointed answer, surely, and it's true. Um, I am. And, and, and God's promised son is going to come and take care of me. He's going to come and take care of all that stands between me and God. Um, one way that we see that is, uh, okay, we see there's a mystery in this text, right? Like it's speaking about Solomon, but he didn't fulfill all the, he didn't bring all these creational blessings to bear clearly. But he did build God a house. So it's got to be him. It's David's son. He gets the throne. He's this amazing king. Israel prospers in large part under him. He's super wise. Um, and, and, and he disobeys. And that, the text mentions that too, right? When, when, uh, when, the son, when your son um, disobeys me, I'm not going to leave him, but I'll discipline him with the rod of men with stripes. He'll be struck, and I will, as a loving father, not just abandon him, but I'll discipline him, and I'll stay with him, and I'll bless him, the, the creation through his line. Um, but it's bigger, than, it's bigger than Solomon, right? Um, one way that we see that this is a, it's pointing to more than just, I'm going to take care of the sin problem between mankind and, and me, and it is that, and I'm going to take care of the brokenness of all creation, is that we see these Edenic creational sort of seeds scattered throughout the text. Um, there are a few of them. I'm just going to mention one. Um, In verse 1, in verse 9, in verse 12, so the text starts out this way, when David had been given rest from all his enemies. And then when God starts to speak to David, um, uh, to Nathan about David and give the promise, he says, I've given him rest from all his enemies. Um, That that Edenic rest is mentioned, but also that word enemies. The first time the, the word enemy or enmity, it's the same root in the Hebrew, appears is after Adam and Eve have been given charge over all creation, And they disobey, they sin, and they say, my way, not your way, God. I don't trust your word. We can do it better, which I say every day. And because of that, because they were given charge over all creation, all creation breaks and falls as they fall. And to this day, it's still broken, though being renewed. And so in the middle, chapter 3, Genesis 3, at the beginning of the Bible, is is the curse that God pronounces over creation. Because you've done this, everything's affected. Everything is going to be broken. Everything's going to be different. Instead of wiping the table clean, though, and saying I'm just going to start over or it's just going to be me and my Trinitarian council and I'm fine with that because I'm perfect and I don't need anything, which God doesn't, he didn't do that. What did he do? He did the opposite. In Genesis 3.15, literally, literally, in the middle, in the bullseye, if you can think about the curse that God enunciates, he goes to man, then woman, then the serpent, and then back out to woman and back out to man. So man on either end, woman, and then right in the center, in the bullseye, of the curse. God gives a promise, he steps into the curse and he says, I'm going to put hatred or enmity between the woman and the serpent, the one who deceived the woman, and between her seed and his seed. And he's going to crush your head, serpent, and you're going to crush his heel. And that, sh- that is a promise that God gives in the middle of the curse saying, I, through this man of the woman, will take care of Satan, the enemies of God, which links into this text, doesn't it, and the enemy within us, our own sin nature, and, and the hell that we deserve because of the way that we live, our disposition, who we are, the choices we make against the just God. He says, I'm going to take that curse upon myself. I'm going to step into creation And through this man that is going to be David's son, I'm going to restore everything. Um, So one of the other things is like, okay, Solomon clearly fulfills this text. He starts to fulfill this text, but not totally. But then we go, okay, Jesus clearly is the, the greater son of David and of Solomon. That through his life and death for us in our place, becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Christ was cursed for us. He took He took the punishment that I deserve. He took the curse that I've brought on creation into himself and he buried it. He paid the price for it and he rose to new life. And the scriptures say that if we trust in him, instead of trying to build God a house, if we just trust in what God has already done and in who God is manifested in Christ, arms outstretched on the cross, we will be saved. Um. It, but when you, when you know that it's Jesus who fulfills the text, it seems a little weird because it's like when he, dis, when he, when he sins, I'll, I'll discipline him. I'll strike, you know, I'll strike him with the rod of men, with his stripes. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take the stripes uh, of the sons of men to him. It's like Jesus didn't sin. He was sinless. But then we, we see what Jesus does, and we see how he fulfills this text. And then we read a passage 300 years from here, 700 years before Jesus in Isaiah, where Isaiah says, by his stripes, Isaiah 53, Who stripes? The suffering servant, the Messiah that's going to come, Jesus. By his stripes, we're what? We're healed. This one is going to come and he's going to be our substitute. He's going to, it's going to be as if when he is disciplined, it's going to be as if, you know, I'm being disciplined because he's taking my place. When he lives a life of obedience, He's living it for me. He didn't need to live a life of obedience. He was perfectly obedient. He's living it for me and for you if you trust in him. When he he dies on that cross, when he's disciplined, when he's struck with the rod of men, when he's crucified, he's not dying for him. He's not dying for himself. He didn't need to die. You do. I do for our sins. He did it for you. It's as if you are dying on the cross. When he rose from the grave, he didn't rise for himself. He rose for us. And so here is this son of David, who is going to live a life of representation in our place, vicariously for us. God's going to build us a house, and he has in Christ. There's nothing, nothing we can do. And, you know, we see that this promise for us is also for all creation, like I've said. And so um, I think one of the things we're reminded of as as I finish and as we sort of step away and try to apply some of this to walking out of here. You know, the cross comes before the crown, C.S. Lewis, and tomorrow is a Monday morning. So how do, how do I apply this stuff other than saying, thank you, Jesus, reminding myself daily, before I shave, as I shave, after I shave, that it's God who requires nothing of me but to believe on His Son, Jesus Christ. The first thing I would say is we, we learn stop striving. We're always prone to strive Because of our broken disposition, we want to try to earn with God. Every other ancient Near Eastern religion that David was surrounded by is, let me build you a house. You've done a ton for me. Let me do some for you. A tit for tat. That's what religion is. I'll do a little, then you give me a little bit in return. I scratch your back, God. You scratch mine. You know what I'm saying? And so it was revolutionary that God said, no, that's not the way I work at all. You can do nothing for me. All you've done is separate yourself from me and heap judgment on yourself. I'm going to step into that and take care of the problem in Christ completely. I'm going to build you a house. But because of that, and as we stop striving and rest in that and remind ourselves and each other of the gospel daily, what? We can start working. And this church, this body of believers does that. I mean, wherever Christians are, wherever the dead are coming to life, we ought to be preaching the gospel to ourselves and others But as the new creation happens in us, we ought to see these new creational promises welling up and being planted and growing around us. Prisons ought to be emptying. Politicians who represent us well and who who love God and are just and equitable ought to be elected. Schools ought to to be full of of teachers that that love the students and teach teach truth. Um, And we ought to be involved in those sorts of things. Um, There ought to be a culture of life wherever we go Foster kids, orphans ought to lower or disappear altogether. Crime ought to drop wherever the church rises up, which is one of the reasons we are for church planting, to preach the gospel, but also to love the city and to see it change and to see Christ's kingdom come. That's part of what it means. And every, as we stop striving and, and embrace the gospel and surrender to Christ, um, it's a seed dropped in the soil of a new creation. It would, Nothing that is good will not remain, St. Augustine. Everything we do by faith is a seed dropped in the soil of new creation that will grow. I'll close, close with this. Somebody asked um, Martin Luther, the reformer, what he would do if he learned Christ was coming tomorrow, and he said, I'd plant a tree. Weird. He got it. In other words, everything that we do, no matter how small, by faith, in what Christ has done for us, not striving, knowing I can't build God a house, He's already done it in Christ, will have tremendous growth, eternal growth in the new creation. There is continuity because of Jesus and what God has done for us in Him. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for the fact that you are our Father and that only through Christ alone. I pray that if there's anyone here, anyone at all who has not trusted in Christ and is still striving, pray that they would stop. They would know that He's done all the work necessary, that He's taken all the punishment necessary, that He has finished the work. And that they would rest in Him. And that as they do that, waters of life would just flow out of their hearts and give other people drink and cause new creation to come forth around them. And I pray in Jesus' name for the good, of this city and for the salvation of many, many souls. Amen.